For today's episode number 280, we'll be speaking with a pioneer in the field of educational neuroscience. The book she wrote, Multiple Pathways to the Student Brain, that we'll cover today, covers the years of work she spent speaking to teachers all over the world about how the brain learns and what this means in the classroom. At the time she graduated, she was the only person, so far as she knew, using the term educational neuroscience. Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, where we cover the science-based evidence behind social and emotional learning for schools and emotional intelligence training in the workplace with tools, ideas, and strategies we can all use for immediate results with our brain in mind. I'm Andrea Samadhi, an author and an educator with a passion for learning, specifically on the topics of health, well-being, and productivity, and launched this podcast to share how important an understanding of our brain is for our everyday life and results using the most current brain research. If there's a tool, strategy, or resource that I find that could be helpful to improve productivity and results, whether we're a teacher in the classroom, a coach, or in the modern workplace, I'll share it here. On today's episode number 280, we'll be speaking with someone I was referred to back in 2014 from Jeff Kleck. He was the educator from episode 246. And he's the one who handed me a bunch of books off of his bookshelf and urged me to move in the direction of educational neuroscience to make a bigger impact with my work. He didn't give me our next guest book. I saw it still left on a shelf, so I figured it must be important to him. But he told me to write down Dr. Janet Zadina and study her. Now, I don't ignore anything that someone tells me to do, especially if there's learning involved. So I wrote down Dr. Zadina's name and immediately followed her work back in 2014. I had no idea at that time that Dr. Zadina was one of the leaders spearheading educational neuroscience in the country before it was even called this. And now fast forward to last September when Jeff Kleck and I finished our interview, he asked me, did you ever interview Dr. Janet Zadina? And I just looked at him and I thought, how did I miss that? Remembering how important it was. I remembered standing in his office and I was holding all these books that he asked me to read. And then we went over to his computer and he pulled up her website with all these free resources and the most up-to-date research. And he told me to review everything. It was Dr. Zadina's work that helped me to begin in this field of educational neuroscience, making the connections to the brain and learning. So today's guest, Dr. Janet Zadina, will soon discover was a former high school and college teacher and cognitive neuroscientist whose background, expertise, energy, and humor all took her to international acclaim. Before we meet Dr. Zadina, I just want to share a bit about how she's been changing lives with science and strategies. She's been said to be powerful, engaging, innovative, life-changing. These are just a few of the words that audiences use to describe concepts and presentations by Janet Zadina, who's known for her extraordinary ability to inform, educate, and empower audiences with the scholarly and credible brain research. She's made such an impact on the academic and education communities that Society for Neuroscience honored her with the prestigious 2011 Science Educator Award. And this recognition solidified her reputation as an educator of high credentials, making significant contributions to public education and raising awareness of critical issues in the field of educational neuroscience. Through her impact, powerful and entertaining presentations and transformational workshops, Dr. Zadina is changing the way teachers, students, and even business professionals understand and utilize the brain. She's determined to tear down brain myths and build up lives stemming from her personal experiences with students with dyslexia and their learning struggles. 
When she learned that a new window into the brain was possible with neuroimaging, she knew she had to go back to school and learn neuroscience. She earned a PhD in education while conducting MRI research on neurodevelopmental language disorders at Tulane Medical School in New Orleans, where she then completed a postdoctoral fellowship in cognitive neuroscience. She's the founder and CEO of Brain Research and Instruction, has been honored as a distinguished fellow in the Council of Learning Assistance and Developmental Education Associations, among many other honors. She's the author of reading and learning textbooks for students, as well as professional development books for teachers, including multiple pathways to the student brain. I've waited a very long time to have this chance to speak with Dr. Zadina, but with patience, I knew we'd meet someday. I hope you enjoy meeting her as much as I know I will. Let's meet Dr. Janet Zadina. Welcome, Dr. Janet Zadina. I can't believe it was almost 10 years ago that an educator found your work and then passed it on to me, and without even knowing it, sparked something to help me get to where I am today with educational neuroscience at the heart of everything I do. Isn't that crazy to think of that impact? Yeah. Good morning. Good but morning. I'm so glad I'm so glad you uh, did reach out even uh, though it was later, and maybe it'll be more interesting now anyway. We'll see. Oh, oh my goodness. Are you in New Orleans, right? That's where you're based out of. Yes, and part-time Tampa area. Oh, fun, fun. Well, New Orleans is dear to my heart. It's where a lot of my work was written, um, walking through those streets, uh, especially with Anne Rice's influence. Have you ever walked past her? She's not there anymore, but... I've driven by a few times. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fun place. Lots of history. So I want to welcome you. This has been uh, a long time coming for me. I'm so excited to dig into the questions and uncover your work here. But before we get to your questions, I just wonder how many people do you run into with stories like mine? Like, oh, I found your work years ago and now this is where I am. Do you hear this often? I do. Um, I'll get most all of my work giving presentations is word of mouth. And I'll hear from people that uh, someone heard me 10 years ago. And now they remembered me when they were on a conference committee or or something. So I'm always hearing from people from years ago. Yes. That's fun. Well, I, I let Jeff Kleck know that I finally got to do this interview. And he said, how cool is that? So we've got a lot of people that are excited for this coming. So if we connect the dots looking backwards in your life and all the people and experiences that we have that shift our direction in some way, I wonder who crossed your path that took you in this direction to become a neuroscientist? What was that moment for you? Well, it was such an amazing moment that it hardly sounds real, Um, but I I got a master's in education because I found that my high school students couldn't read. And so I focused on reading, but back then it was mostly elementary and I was secondary. So they made kind of a special program, but it was still um, new in the field of dyslexia and there were still no answers. So then I became a reading specialist and there were still no answers back in know, the 80s and 90s. Um, There were many theories, but uh, then I was teaching at the community college and still dealing with struggling learners when I saw an article in the newspaper that a scientist, Christiana Leonard, had looked inside the brains of students with dyslexia via MRI. I'm getting chills telling you. And I said right then to my husband, I want to do this. You know, it's a new way to address dyslexia. And I was like about 52. And he's like, you can't just go become a neuroscientist. But by another stroke of fate, she came to New Orleans to speak in the medical grand rounds. And the only time this ever happened, my husband got a notice about her talk 
He has never gotten a notice about grand rounds before or since. I showed up with the medical students and went up and talked to them and met uh, Ann Fondas, who ran uh, a language lab here looking at stuttering. And it's going to sound very simple to say eventually I... uh, did get a postdoctoral fellowship in her lab. I did do the MRI brain research on college students with dyslexia, but it was a a very uphill path. Well, you know, Dr. Zadina, what's crazy is that I've heard this story from other educators that write books for students. Like uh, his name is Douglas Fisher. Do you know Fisher and Fry? They've written some books, um, uh, they've been on the podcast, but they've written some books now about the the brain and learning. And he went and sat in on classes like that with all medical students around him to try to figure out wh- what do I need to know about the brain? But he did not go on to be a neuroscientist like you did. You took that extra step. I, that's just wild to me that you learned it. And then you thought, well, now how do I, you went to a lab and you started to look at brains of, of how, how did you do this? Well, it took a a few years because when I talked to her and I told her I taught reading with students, she knew that I had potential subjects to participate and she knew I was a reading specialist. So she said to Tiana, well, maybe Janet could replicate your research here and we could do something like that. But then I enrolled in the PhD program at University of New Orleans in uh, the College of Education, but they said, no, no, brain research, that left brain, right brain, that's all wrong. They didn't understand. And then finally, when they understood, they all wanted to be on my committee. But, and so I, um, I had to try and set up a collaboration between the medical school and the College of Education. And so at first she would just let me sit in the lab and listen. That was about a year. But when she saw my literature review of the subject, then she got more interested. And I just went and got the um, human subjects, uh, the internal review board. I'm sorry, it's early. I got internal uh, review board permission from five different colleges to recruit. I got a whole stack of potential subjects and then they really jumped on board. And eventually uh, she hired me as a research assistant. And then I was awarded, once I graduated, a postdoctoral fellowship to continue doing this research there. What a path. And, you know, I've heard horror stories from people who started years ago, like you just said, left brain, right brain, nah, that's all wrong. But people that saw the potential in this field years ago, I've, I've talked to so many people that that share, you know, where this began. So, you know, as a pioneer in educational neuroscience, what were some of the biggest challenges you faced? Was it just that, that they didn't recognize or understand? Well, You see, I didn't have anyone in the College of Education who could understand the literature and explain it to me. And I wasn't in the position to get any help from the lab. So when I did my qualifying exam on a literature review of this field of MRI and dyslexia, I just had to read the articles over and over and over and over and to try and make sense of them. But it's then hard, when she- right? it's so hard going on PubMed, I've done so many uh, episodes on trying to navigate through the title, the study, what they're trying to prove, the conclusion. It's hard. Well, what I would do is I read them all through once. Maybe I understood 10 percent. But having read them all, then I start back over again. I understand maybe 25 percent. Yeah. And um there wasn't a lot on YouTube or Google at exactly. that point, yep. but I persevered and then she was very pleased with the literature review and that's what got it started. But the other problem was picture um, a 
someone in the College of Education saying, oh, I think I'll just pick brain research for my project. Skepticism, um, eye rolling, right? So I had to be at the top, right? I had to really shine. And then picture a 52-year-old teacher going into the neuroscience lab with all the 20-year-old neuroscientists with a background in neuroscience saying, you know, I think I'll just do what you do. And uh, the skepticism there. So it was kind of a a lonely path as well. But I had great mentors, both at the College of Education. I just had lunch with one of them, Renee Casper, yesterday. And so it worked out. Yeah, but there was another... uh, issue too, is that at the beginning, it was considered a bridge too far to translate that. And also people would say, what kind of a job are you going to get? But I did it for the knowledge. I did it because I wanted to, not for a career. Exactly. It can't be about the money or, you know, it cannot, or you're not going to sit there and navigate through those difficult articles and and do the difficult work if that's what it is so oh this is this is even more exciting than i thought so then how did you switch from doing mri research in the lab to going out and speaking to educators it kind of went backwards you were you started education lab then you went back right i can explain it in two words hurricane katrina okay yes all that work and you talk about pay. Uh, I worked for free at the lab for mm-hmm. quite a while until I was hired, you know, right. just what it took, right? Mm-hmm. Prove yourself. And uh, if there was no funding, but uh, I had just become a scientist. I was in the second year of my three-year postdoctoral fellowship and Hurricane Katrina destroyed our lab and destroyed the work. So we evacuated to Florida I had my mother with dementia, ended up in Tampa Bay. And um, at that time, my speaking career was already taking off. I was uh, on the road quite a bit. And so I just went with that, although I was crushed to not be in the lab, crushed. But I realized later I can help more people by disseminating the information than the few studies that take years each that I would have done. Very true. There's such a gap, which is why I launched this podcast. It was to try to take the science because I was navigating through, I was looking, who can I learn this from after Jeff Kleck gave me all these books and I opened it and I'm like, I, I don't understand this, you know, that all these maps of memory and the brain it, and and then you take a, a course and it gets even harder. So that I, I do see that was the gap. And but but as an educator, you would know how to explain it, right? To make it so that people understood it in a simple way, which is what I got from those early presentations and your early TED Talks. I was just floored with what I was seeing. And oh, that's kind of you. Thank you. Oh no, and and you know, especially looking for a female that's doing this work. Uh, that was important to me because I seem to latch on to a lot, a lot of, you know, all the leaders that are males doing things. And so to find a, a female leader, you and I found Dr. Lori Desital doing this work with the schools. And I was like, this is powerful. I need to, I need to connect here and see what it is because um, the struggle that you've gone through is much more than I even realized before doing this to get to where you are. Well, there's another factor that when I was in graduate school, I went to the very first um, seminar that Harvard Graduate School of Education did, their Mind, Brain, and Education Institute, Beyond Excited. And when I went there, the upshot was, no, teachers should not be doing this. It's a bridge too far. This should not be done. And that was crushing. There was... um, a lot of skepticism toward what I was doing as well. Right. So that was another factor. But now where where do you see it is now? Has the 
the research finally caught up with the understanding now? Yes, there it is starting. At the beginning, the, there were brain-based presenters without education or experience in neuroscience. And a lot of myths got started. Then scientists started speaking on the circuit, but they didn't have experience with struggling learners. So you have the strategies without the science, then you have the science without the strategies, okay? And now it's more accepted and I'm trying to bring the science and the strategies. Now, some people call it neuroeducation. I prefer the term educational neuroscience. It doesn't really matter, I guess. However, we are not where we need to be. I thought and others thought that there would be training programs to blend these two and to create this field. But a couple of universities tried and it just wasn't working, okay? One of them tried to train some scientists in, edu to, in the field of education and so forth. So now I'm working with a team to develop a, a training program that will be very comprehensive because there's a lot in medicine itself that is speaking to this that's not being incorporated. And of course, psychology, neuroscience. So we want to create a very um, holistic training program where there will be certified educational neuroscientists because the schools really need to know how to apply this. Exactly. Yep. Well, I'm going to follow that because I'm watching this whole field um, since really 2014, since that educator said, you must go in this direction. You must understand it to make an impact in the future. And he knew what my vision was. And he says, you're not going to do it without this vision. And he kept your book. He wouldn't give me your book. <laughs> he, he walked me through your website, but he kept your book. And so I thought, well, this must be important that he kept the book with all the strategies in it. But um, see, you went through the same phase. I mean, you did it too. Here you are today, right? Right. Yeah. You came in at the time when it was still tenuous, right? Exactly. And I was trying to do it from the side that I was watching social and emotional learning go into the schools um, just the same way. It wasn't accepted. They were called soft skills. That's why the podcast is <laughs> Neuroscience Meets SEL. Because, oh, yeah. you know, I was watching SEL really since the late 90s. It wasn't called that. But all these soft skills that I knew were important for students, eventually they're getting, you know, more and more accepted into schools. So now they have SEL uh, positions in the schools. And so that's the vision that I saw, like you're saying, it's not there yet. I see that same vision for educational neuroscience in the schools, a, a position, someone that bridges the gap in our schools between the research that understands this, um, who's certified in some way. So you're, you're on the map. And then there's also this other uh, Dr. Daniel Ansari. He's out of uh, Canada and he had the same vision. He, he, he's a, on the research chair for educational neuroscience, written some papers in this field. And he sees that position in all the schools as well. And so that's where my eye is, is, you know, who's going to create uh, the training for that. And so this is good. This is, on the, on the map of, of the vision. So I'm, I'm excited about this. Well, you know, when I was first invited to participate in this um, collaboration from, of scientists from around the world, from a variety of fields, I got tears in my eyes because I said, you know, I just hope I live long enough to see this happen. I thought it would happen quickly, right. but time shifts, I guess, don't happen that quickly. Yeah, I've asked that question too to some of um, the researchers I studied with that are, you know, they're, I would say, you know, what will I see this in my lifetime? And the answer is, I don't know. It's, it's long and hard, this path. So, you know, just keep doing the work and, and progress will be made. That's the, the vision is there for sure. 
So I want to go to a question about reading, uh, because I read a lot of my research on my phone and through Kindle Reader. And I know you've got a background in reading. And then I have printed books on my desk that, you know, or I can highlight. What would be the difference or something that I would need to understand between reading on my phone or holding a print book? Is, is there something I should know? There is a difference in the brain uh, between print and digital, okay? So reading depends on the purpose. We, it, let's talk about educating um, students first, and then we can talk about our personal reading. But for the purpose of education, we need to always include print on paper, include it, not exclusively, okay? Because we read slower and deeper. There's pauses, there's processing, there's less scrolling through. We're used to scrolling through digital material. And so uh, it doesn't have the same effect on us. But then, of course, there are advantages of dig digital, especially for struggling readers. But I would like to clear up a myth while we're on this subject that listening to books is not as intellectual or appropriate as reading them with your eyes, okay? Look, the eyes are not superior to the ears. <laughs> it's the brain that reads. It's the, the modality that gets the information there can differ. So uh, it's a matter of preference, really, auditory versus uh, reading with your eyes. But uh, back to the slow and deep processing on print, uh, I would not always listen or always read on a device, okay? Don't make that the 90% the of your reading. For example, I read nonfiction in print, like you to highlight, to go back, to refer to. I want to think about things a lot. Uh, you go back and read the paragraph. It's much easier in print, and we do process it deeper. Um, so you might just think about your purpose. I read fiction on my Kindle. Right. Well, well, wouldn't that make sense? Like what I just have to go back to what you said about the you can hear things. You, you could do the audio books or even podcasts because I listen to a lot and I learn from other people and still take notes. So the information is still getting there. It's just coming in, like you said, into my brain through my auditory instead of reading it. Exactly. And let's clear something up right now while we're on the subject before somebody um, goes off on one of these brain myth tangents. Okay. That does not make someone an auditory learner or a visual learner. Mm -hmm. The learning styles theory is a myth. You know, um, when when it first started, teachers realized that learners were different and that they might try different strategies. So they were trying to address learning differences without any research on the brain because there wasn't any at the time. But once we started doing fMRI imaging and we watched people learn and read, then we saw that the brain is not that simple. A person is not an auditory or a visual or a kinesthetic. In fact, the more modalities, the better. Now, people have preferences. And, you know, John Medina says everyone is a visual learner. Vision trumps everything. So unless you're visually impaired, uh, it's ideal to have visuals to go along with it, uh, with the learning. But that doesn't mean that we can't learn from podcasts or books on tape auditorially. We don't have to consider ourselves an auditory learner. And I do that as well. I'm starting to do that more because I realize I could learn so much more if I use some of this wasted time. Okay. Uh, so today, if I'm getting a manicure, I'm going to be listening to a podcast. Okay. Instead of adult chatter. Exactly. I clean my house while I'm listening and then I got to have a notebook around to take notes. Exactly. Because I bought a headphone that I could easily pause. Mm. That was key. Pause and process. Got it. Got it. Well, so 
as I, as I was reading through your book, um, The Multiple Pathways to the Student Brain, there were lots of aha moments. And, and what I do when I'm reading on my Kindle is I'll highlight and I'll take a, make a graphic out of it. And I put some of the graphics in the show notes. Um, but one of the passages that stuck out to me that I made a graphic on, it says uh, that this book stems from your decade of speaking to teachers. And at the time you graduated, you were the only person as far as you knew using that term educational neuroscience. Looking back now, where do you think this discipline is from where you saw it in those early days when no one even called it anything? We we talked about some of that and the mm -hmm. terminology, but one thing I've noticed, and I think it's problematic, is that there's so much in the media, little brain bites about the brain and learning, that I think people think they have that covered. It's written simply. They think they understand it. So they're not as interested as they were in an in-depth, presentation okay so I'm seeing there's kind of a a shift that it's not as much of a hot topic as it was and I think it's getting a little watered down it should still be now I'm biased but it should still be an important part of professional development and teacher education Definitely. That was one thing I noticed standing in front of a class of students that were behavioral and I wondered what was wrong with them. I had no idea it was all me, you know, I had no training. I didn't understand how their brains worked. I didn't understand the more stressed I got, the worse they were behaving. Like it would have been nice to know that I, I would have done things a little bit differently. So, you know, definitely it would have been nice to have this as a part of a teacher training program. Right. So when your mission began, when you first started speaking about the brain and learning and writing your books, was it that you wanted to help teachers at all levels to understand this information that, that you know, looking back, I'm like, would have been nice that things would have been so different. Is that where it all began for you? Well, my mission at the beginning was to tell them some of this amazing new information that was going to help us teach more effectively. And then bring my background in high school and community college uh, and some teaching with adults to give them credible strategies. I'm sorry to say at the beginning when this was really hot, brain-based, oh my gosh, you know, it, it was kind of a bad situation. I know one presenter that was on the circuit talked about a brain region that is just non-existent. It was just made up. I mean, there, there was no such thing, okay? And there were others that were dumbing it down, treating teachers as if they weren't very smart or at best wasting time or promoting neuromyths. Now, there, I'm not, there's not to say there weren't good people out there and that people didn't have good intentions, but it had to sort itself out. Okay. It, it got off when there, well, when I started, I could tell you everything we credibly knew about the brain and learning in probably 30 minutes or less because the work was being done on rats. Right. Okay. We didn't know very much. And so if people wanted to present, they sort of made these extrapolations, these leaps that were untenable. Then we were able to look inside the brain as it did do math and read and think and working memory. And now we know so much, I can hardly keep up with it all, but present for days. So uh, that's been a big change. Now, don't don't you think also, this is what I heard from the, the researcher that I studied with, that he published a book and he had things written in his book and then science proved him to be wrong. And he's like, oh no, my book is wrong now. He's got to fix it. He learned something about how some, some pathway goes in the brain and one of his graphs is now wrong. So 
Didn't didn't you notice that happened along the way as new research informs what we already know? Now we've got to rethink things along the way. You see, that makes him a very credible presenter and researcher. When we know better, we do better. And there has been um, many times where I've had to change slides or omit things and put something different because it wasn't that simple it, or that theory didn't pan out. Now, unfortunately, I think in some way, I think it might have held me back in some way, but I was so concerned about credibility that I would only present what was very widely believed. I did not want to be on the cutting edge, much less the bleeding edge, or to say anything that wouldn't be true, you know, to make a, a, an untenable leap. So um, if you keep up with the research, however, and you don't just read a book, you keep up with actual research, you do have to change things. That's science, right? That's the nature of science. Yeah, I was interviewing uh, Lucy Biven, who wrote Archaeology of Mine with Jack Panksepp. And she said, one of my questions, she said, well, I didn't have it right in the book. Someone emailed me. I had it wrong. And here she was on the podcast saying, here's how it's right now. So she was learning along the way and and sharing how, you know, that the, the research was informing even an author of, that worked right with Jack Pangsept on, you know, those core emotions. She didn't have it right. And it, it's just amazing. Like when, when we look back and make those corrections, like you said, it's, it's not an easy thing to stay uh, on the, with the, with the research. And I'm always trying to prove things or look at um, push the edge and trying to say, you know, what, how to make things that science hasn't yet proven. That's, that's a lot of what, what I'm looking at. It's kind of exciting as new things come out and I listen to new thing, new speakers. I, I want to know how we can evolve along the way. Well, you and I are on the same page because at this point in my career, um, I'm I feel freer to do more of what interests me and to push the envelope a bit, even though it's not out and widely known among the audiences, it is being established in the literature. So I'm looking at the role of spirituality, for example, and learning. I don't mean religion per se, but this attitude of being connected to other things and looking at uh, less widely known aspects and being a little more on the cutting edge of what is new. So that's what I'm working on now. Some very, very cutting edge and exciting research that is substantial enough to be uh, able to be put out there, okay? And uh, I'll be taking a whole new approach, approach. So in a year, you're going to see something very different. Well, it, would that be the answer to your question, what's exciting and new that's coming up with your presentations? Is that where you're going? Like that is exactly where I'm focused on right now, trying to uncover things we can't see using science. Well, just got goosebumps again because, all right, you know the image of the woman and the vase, the optical illusion. Okay. If you look in the center at the white, you see the vase. And if you look the outside at the black, you see the woman. And I think that we have been focusing on the vase and the vase is strategies, curriculum, student issues and attributes, assignments, all of these tangible things. And when you look at the vase, you cannot see the woman. Okay, you can only see one thing at a time. Right. So yeah. my new talk, and I'm writing an article, or might be a book, it's getting so long, I don't know right now, but is the woman. Okay, it's uh, going to be a very holistic type thing. Oh, I'd love to see that when you're when you've released it. Definitely. This is exciting. 
And so as you're taking this new direction, what's your next step with everything that you're doing? Just you're continuing to research and then um, your certification program. How are you rolling everything all out right now with what you're doing? Well, the the program that uh, I'm a member of the board of, that's going to take a while. All right. Currently, what's happening um, I'd like to talk a minute about where the direction of my research changed sure. and now where it's going to go. Because for years I uh, was educating educators about how the brain learned. And also I had a very big following in English as a second language, language learning field, okay? And so that was one of my big interests, the bilingual brain and how we learn language. Then um, when Hurricane Katrina hit, I was writing a book with uh, an ESL professor. And she said, I can't keep working on the book because I got some kind of brain damage from Hurricane Katrina. And I told her, no, it's not brain damage, it's trauma. And I was also working with a noted scientist in the field of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder in Tampa, trying to get something going with the vets with PTSD. Now, before Katrina, in addition to my work at the lab, I would go over to the VA hospital and work for free with a scientist there who was doing research, uh, non-pharmacological intervention with the veterans with PTSD. So I... Um, I brought the heart rate variability concept to them. That was very new at the time. It's pretty well known now. And Hurricane Katrina destroyed that. So as I worked with David Diamond and I did a literature review of all the non-pharmacological interventions for trauma, um, such as you know yoga, Tai Chi, meditation, it was considered a little, a little too cutting edge for them over there at that time, but I became quite familiar with the field. So when my friend told me that she thought she had brain damage and I began to talk to other people after disasters, like after the Japanese tsunami that thought they had brain damage, I knew that what I had to do was to go to areas after natural disaster and help them understand they were not losing their mind. They were not having a nervous breakdown. They were not uh, getting brain damage or Alzheimer's. They had trauma. And how did it affect them and how did it affect their students? So I started this thing I called the butterfly project, meaning that, you know, the effect a butterfly can have around the world by flapping its wings. Uh, so I went on my own dollar around the country and around the world and uh, after natural disaster to help the teachers. Then the pandemic hit. More okay. <laughs> now I was zooming like crazy to everyone, helping them understand that. Now we're in another phase. It's not really post-pandemic because I don't think you can really say the pandemic is over per se, but we're in a new phase. And I think it's even harder. It's even harder what teachers are seeing with their students now. Behavior issues, lack of effort, lack of interest. They came back, but they are not the same. So my current talks address that, recapturing their hearts, their minds, their brain, their emotions, you know. Exactly what's needed right now. So so for teachers that, um, you know, want to take away something from your work, I just remember Jeff Kleck pulling me into his office and opening up his computer and showing me your website and all the resources. Is that still the best place for teachers to go if they wanted to right now go to your website, do you still have all those resources? Is that the best place for them? Yes, there's a variety of resources posted there. Um, so there's a tab called resources and then those uh, web links 
on that page are categorized. So there is one for reading, one for math, one for brain health, learning differences, trauma, happiness. So you can go there and, and read some of the research. Um, in uh, the web links are not the the uh, peer reviewed article itself. It's articles about that. So it's easier for them to understand, okay? And then I have a coping with COVID page and it has a lot of resources to help with their stress. And if they scroll down, there's a lot of videos of things that they can actually do to reduce their stress. The Butterfly Project page has trauma resources for them or their older students. Then my blog has things that might be in my books or my talks, you know, little easy uh, articles. Easy, I mean, it doesn't take that long, you know, just some helpful information, maybe some new research. So uh, if they sign up for my newsletter, they will also get maybe every couple months. I'm not really good at getting it out. So no worries about spam there. But it they can have get an email now and then to remind them of some of these things and has some articles. Excellent. Well, we've covered a lot here. And it all stemmed from an educator telling me you've got to study Dr. Janet Zadina. And I wrote it down and saw your website. This is where it all began. Have we missed anything that's important? Do you think like anything? Well, we've covered a lot, but is there anything that you'd like to close out with or some final thoughts? Well, I'd like to leave with a message that can help uh, educators and their family. And you're probably familiar with this, but there is actually a science of gratitude, okay? If they want to do one thing that can help themselves and their families and their students, it's to keep a gratitude diary. Now, why? Why? Because we are wired to pay attention to the negative for survival. We do not have to pay attention to the positive, and we don't. But if we don't process the positive for about 20 seconds, it doesn't have an effect. So it's not doing anything for our brain. But we have been firing and wiring some very negative pathways of anxiety, stress, and trauma these last few years. We don't want that to be the way we go forward or the way we go through life. So how can we fire and wire pathways of happiness? By changing what we pay attention to. It's attention that causes brain change. When they took monkeys and had them do an activity, it changed their brain. Unless they had it so they didn't pay attention to it. They did the same thing, no brain change, okay? So keeping a gratitude diary changes what you pay attention to. And then you start looking for the positive and you start firing and wiring some pathways of positivity. Research shows that you can be 25% happier just by doing that. And that's quite a bit. I've gotten letters from uh, educators telling me how their family life has changed, how uh, their children have become happier by asking them at night. They might say, what were your blessings today? Or what good thing happened today? Sometimes people do it around the dinner table. It's focusing on the good. That's not to say be Pollyanna. Oh, everything will be fine. Don't worry. No, it might not be, but in all the bad, there's always some good. Look for that, focus on that, and it's helpful to do it maybe before you go to sleep. I do it mentally before I go to sleep, but in the morning, I write them down. Love it. And I got to pull my gratitude journal from Jack Canfield out that's on my desk, and I've been writing gratitude since November of 2008. And right. I just open it up and, you know, it's amazing. I can go back to 2011. I'm so thankful that I'm still working from home, at least until May of 2012, because my second daughter was coming and I was able to work from home with her. So I just opened it up to August 5th of 
2011. And like you said, focusing, it, it brings in that reticular activating system, right? That part of my brain that is going to be focused on the good instead of, I remember pregnancy was hard. I didn't write all about how brutal I felt. It was to focus and shift my attention on the good. And isn't that, isn't that wild that you would pick to end on gratitude? Because it's important and we can forget sometimes to do that. We do forget. And you can always open that book and remember. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's what I like to do. If I open it, it, it goes all the way back to 2008. And then I'll write something as I run out of space. Some some parts of, of the, the year I write more in and other parts are completely blank. But um, but yeah, it's a great practice and great reminder. Dr. Zadina, it's been an honor to have you on the podcast today. I'm going to be forever grateful that Jeff Kleck referred me to your work all those years ago. And I'm so happy we're able to connect to make this interview happen. So for people who want to learn more about you, your website is the best place. Can you just say the URL? I'll put it in the in the video when we produce it. But what's your website? Yes. Um, well, it was an honor to be here today. Thank you so much for including me. And uh, the web page is pretty easy to remember because it's www.brainresearch.us. No caps. Perfect. Well, I want to thank you for all your years of research, for launching and being a pioneer in this field, and for many of us who are just scratching the surface of what we're capable of doing with this information. Thank you so much, Dr. Zadina. You're welcome. Thank you. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.